Hi, I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of the Wiser Podcast, where we continue to have discussions about women in surgery with Emory surgeons, in addition to interviewing surgeons beyond our local community. Welcome to our first episode of season four. We've got a special episode today with several of my favorite people, co-chiefs from my graduating year of general surgery residency, including Dr. Adekemi Igansola, Dr. Maggie Diller, and Dr. Priya Rajdev. Hosting with me today is Samriti Vanskota, who is a third-year Emory Medical student who joined our Wiser production team this year. As surgery trainees across the country graduate from their programs this summer, we thought it would be a fun episode to circle back with some of the Emory General Surgery Chiefs of 2019 who have just completed their first year of their first jobs and recap how the job hunt and the transition from trainee to faculty went. We hope sharing their experience will be helpful to you all. We had originally planned this episode as one big fun recording session remotely. However, we got a good taste of attending life when half of us got stuck in emergent cases. So we ended up recording this over several sessions separately, and our awesome editors helped splice them together. So while not a true reunion, we still enjoyed debriefing about our first year together. So we know each other very well as co-chiefs from Emory's General Surgery Residency's graduating class of 2019. We then split up and did one-year fellowships across the country, and we are now approaching the one-year anniversary into our first year of practice. We'll start off by introducing ourselves, where we're from originally, what we specialized in, in our fellowship program, and where we are now. I'm Vivian Wang, born and raised in Maryland. After graduating from Emory General Surgery Residency, I did my minimally invasive surgery fellowship at Ohio State University, and now I live in Portland, Oregon, working at Kaiser, where I do general surgery with an emphasis on bariatric and foregut surgery. My name is Maggie Diller. I am originally from Wyoming did general surgery training at Emory University in Atlanta, and then did fellowship training at Cedars-Sinai, minimally invasive surgery, advanced GI and bariatric surgery. And now I have come back to Emory and am assistant professor in the division of general and GI surgery there. My name is Priya Rajdev. I'm originally from New York. And after Emory, I did my MIS fellowship at Oregon Health Science University. And currently, I am a minimally invasive general and GI surgeon at Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix, which is affiliated with the University of Arizona. My name is Adi Kamiagumshala. I'm originally from Nigeria. I did my medical school and then my general surgery training both at Emory. Mm-hmm. And then following that, I went ahead and did a colorectal fellowship up in New York at Northwell at Hofstra School of Medicine. And that's where I ended up staying afterwards as an attending now. What did you look for in your first job? I knew that I wanted to do academic surgery pretty early on. So a lot of my focus is on clinical trial design and implementation, focusing on alternative and complementary therapies and integrating those into surgical care models. A little bit out there. Not a lot of places are doing that or invested in that. So when I was sending out my CV, I really used my mentors who had connections with division chiefs and department chairs who were sort of interested in supporting those sorts of research endeavors. The advice that we were given was find a place where the people are good. And that was the number one thing I was looking for in a job. 
where people would be supportive, understanding, and would be able to foster this critical first few years of development after finishing training, because truly our training has not finished by any means. Yeah, absolutely. The people you would be working with will make or break your experience much more so than future career opportunities like being the head of this or getting to do 50% of your clinical practice in this special area that you wanted to do. Right. Which is hard to remember when you're really raring to go and you just finished all this awesome training and you're like, all right, am I going to do this special awesome case that I've done all through a fellowship? You still want to be able to use the skills that you developed, at least if you weren't going to get to do it right away, that there was a promise that you would get to do it soon, or you at least got to do some of it. You have to pick the top two or three things that are the most important and rank them from there. How prepared did you feel like you were for finding your first job? Well, that I would say it's not something that really we're taught at any real point. I don't remember really going to any particular sessions or having any information on how to do that. So I just muddled through it. Part of me just tried to extrapolate interviews and doing things like that for residency and fellowship to trying to do that for jobs as well. I had people helping me in terms of, oh, here are other places to consider jobs. Here are places I have some connections to. So that was somewhat helpful. But I think the biggest thing that ended up helping me was that both institutions I trained at were interested in retaining me. Like Emory was, was interested in me coming back and Northwell was interested in me staying. And so that definitely helped me just because at least now I knew about the inner workings of these institutions as I was going to make that decision. So I was very, very lucky because I had a mentor at Cedar sinai while I was in fellowship. Her name is Shrin Tofai. She's a big um, hernia surgeon in the LA area. And I would say that I came into it from an application CV standpoint, relatively unprepared. And as soon as I got there, she took me under her wing and she was like, we need to get your CV updated. She really helped me get the ball rolling. Because of her, I think that I was fortunate enough to start very early. So one of the things that I did that I don't know a lot of other people are necessarily attuned to is I emailed people prior to the American College of Surgeons Conference, which is a big conference, national conference that a lot of people go to, and was actually able to set up a lot of informal meetings with people who were at places where I was interested in going. And because of that, I think was able to get a leg up on the interview and application process. Again, these were very informal. It was just in between presentations, meeting with people for coffee and just getting a sense of that initial fit. I think initially I was very prepared and then the pandemic hit. There was a scramble at the beginning of fellowship to understand, okay, how am I going to get from point A to point B, point A being training, point B being uh, employment? And I think we all did multiple different things, right? We all sent out cold calls. We all applied for jobs through messaging boards or online forums. And then I think we all did networking as much as we could in person because we were fortunate enough to have in-person meetings at the end of 2019. It's so different than all of your other application processes that you've now been through two or three times in your medical career, which is so scripted. There's a deadline. There's a match. I mean, it's so anxiety provoking, but at least it's going to happen and you're just going to be told where to go. And here it's just all up to you. The things I relied on other than 
prior fellows that had graduated were the websites for whatever societies you're part of. I check them every day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and then if you're in a field where you have reps that you work with closely, oftentimes because they have a network across the country, they can ask a rep in whatever city you're looking for a job. If you're trying to find a private practice or a community type of job, sometimes you just got to know the people. And so the reps can be helpful oh, yeah. for that. They're totally an underutilized resource, I think. What about any job hunter people? Did you utilize any of them? I didn't, but my co-fellow did, and she had some success with them. Her eventual job didn't come through that, through the sort of headhunting agencies, but it's definitely something that it's easy to poo-poo when you're steeped in academia, but it works. Do you know anyone who couldn't get the job they wanted and had to go to plan B, and what did they do? I know of one person who almost didn't look for a job because he didn't think that anything that was out there was valuable to him. The last I heard, he was just taking a mini sabbatical post-training. In our current climate, is somewhat acceptable. If you can't find the thing that you have trained to do, you could do locums. In fact, the other there's another woman I know from OHSU who very highly trained. She actually was my resident when I was a medical student at Michigan, and then we were co-fellows together. And she trained in HPB, and those jobs are really highly sought after and can be few and far between. Forget about pandemic year. So her plan was to stop worrying so much, do some locums, keep up her general surgery skills, and enjoy a little time, which can be really hard for all of us to accept. <laughs> We're all told that you want to find your first job as one that you'll stay in for at least three years, preferably five years. Right. But I think in certain circumstances, like a pandemic or big life changes, family changes, whatever it is, as long as you have an explanation for it, I think people understand that. I agree with that 100%. Now, the only trouble with us saying that is that we both have the luxury of having jobs <laughs> that were pretty much our plan A. So it may not feel that way. And then I don't know really how someone who's hiring sees that. I don't know the answer to that. And I think yeah. that our mentors would tell us, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But I wonder what reality is. Well, how did your choice in your fellowship and the actual program that you chose help or not help you? I'm very happy with where I ended up going for fellowship. It gave me a chance to really just hone in on things that are, that are specific to my field in terms of colorectal and, and really feel more solidly trained in that particular area. For me, it ended up being where I stayed for my job. So it was very helpful with my job. But even now, I still find that I use all of that training constantly, both for my residency and fellowship and, and what I do. And I would say, a lot of the surgical fields are going towards specialties. And so the majority of people who are um, entering the job market surgically have done some form of a fellowship, whether it's MIS, colorectal, surgeon, whatever it might be. And so it, it makes you more marketable. I felt like it helped a lot. I chose to do MIS fellowships really because I wanted to be a general surgeon. I felt like at the time that I graduated, in order to be a really great general surgeon, I wanted to improve not only my laparoscopic skills, but my robotic skills as well. 
Now, some people choose those sorts of fellowships, MIS and bariatrics in particular, because they have a very specific type of surgical pathology that they want to do, either foregut surgery or bariatric surgery. I do like those things, but that was not why I did the fellowship. I felt like what it did for me was give me tools that I could add to my toolkit. So I did think it made me a more marketable general surgeon. I feel very comfortable as a general surgeon, and I can now do these, you know, use advanced technologies and advanced techniques to to treat a variety of surgical diseases. I also think it helps increase the pool of interviews that I got. So my program for fellowship was very foregut heavy, which means I did a lot of esophagus and stomach operations, which boiled down to esophageal cancer, reflux disease, parasophageal hernias, almost exclusively, actually. And of course, there was a bariatrics component, which got cut down. And so those numbers fell. But that was the, the big two things in my training. And I also did a lot of solid organ, which I really, really wanted to learn because it's just fine dissection laparoscopically. You can do really incredible things with just your laparoscopic tools. And I thought that was a nice evolution of our training from Emory. The job uh, is not as aligned with what I did in fellowship. I've had to shift gears a little bit. And now I've taken the next step in minimally invasive training. And I do almost exclusively robotic surgery. I didn't really know the breakdown of what I would be doing when I joined. I just knew that I was being recruited to do bariatrics, but it hadn't opened yet. I knew it was just going to continue to grow. For foregut, I was replacing someone who had recently retired who did some foregut, but at Kaiser, there's a pool of people that do foregut, and so things just get divided equally. So I didn't know all those details. I just knew that they promised me they would get me on the robot. I knew I was going to do bariatrics to some degree, and I would get some foregut but I didn't know if that was going to be one or like 20 a year. But it's certainly met my expectations, and I think it will continue to hopefully go beyond that. What I failed to mention was that part of the job here in Phoenix was that we are building an academic department. So there's room to build, there's room to grow. And so there is an expectation that you evolve into things that you may not have expected that you would do. I didn't realize being the first year out, you get whatever cases come by and some of my first cases were some of the toughest cases I've ever done, which Mm -hmm. is not the way you're taught how to do it. Now I'm thankful for that because I'm enjoying the cases I get, but it is something to think about. Like you have to be very confident in the training abilities and your ability to pick up a phone and call an old mentor for help, things like that. I have relied a lot on calling people for help. And I've, again, comes back to the people or who are around me. What I try to do instead of deferring is getting another person in the room to do the case with me. The people who are going to be looking for jobs in rural areas, I often think about them. And I often think, hey, if I'd had in this case and it was just me, what would I do? And there are those people out there who are graduating and who are going to be the only thing in town, which is very intimidating, but people do it. They mm-hmm. learn. Yeah, you do the best you can with the resources you have. Exactly. yourself. So. Exactly. Just be safe. What would you do the same or differently in your job search if you were to do it again? I probably would have been a little bit more aggressive about reaching out when I didn't hear from certain jobs. There are certain places that I I submitted an application to that I've still not heard from. I, I don't think you can start too early. I think emailing and making connections and utilizing all of the mentors that you have at your disposal, as soon as you finish residency, 
they're going to be studying for written boards, get your CV updated, start thinking about a cover letter um, and have those done so that come September, you can start, you know, sending those out. It's also worthwhile checking the job board, but I felt like the most uh, bang for your buck is really is utilizing mentors and people who already have existing connections to help you get your foot in the door. There's no right or wrong, I think, in a job search. That's a problem, right? You want to start early, but the jobs come out when they come out. They don't come out on your academic schedule when you're going to graduate for fellowship in that perfect timing. And so it's okay to wait, not that you should procrastinate, but we all have this sense of doom if we're sitting around searching and nothing's popped up. I had a very diverse interview process. So I don't think I would do that differently because it gave me a good perspective and it helped me figure out what I wanted to do. And even if it's online, or at least the first time they'll talk to you on the phone and and get a sense of what it is, I think it's always good just to at least have that conversation because you Mm -hmm. might make new contacts that you could use in the future, even if it's not the right time right now for a job. I agree with you. I, I don't know that I would do a ton differently. I sent out cold call messages pretty early on and I don't regret that at all because I get the sense that two, three years down the line, someone may remember, oh, I received a a letter from you way back when. I remember that. I've made connections with, for instance, Mark Talamini, who was the chair at Stony Brook. He and I ended up working together on other projects. So I don't think interviews are ever going to be a waste waste of time, whether it's for residency, fellowship, and, and for jobs. Things you should ask for when looking for a job on the interview. Because of my research interests, I really wanted protected time. I was looking for at least 30% protected time. And then the other thing was I was particularly interested in the number of of surgeons that were going to be my group helping me take call. And then I was also asking about what types of cases they were going to be offering me. And then little things like, are you going to have block time right off the bat? So where I am now, I had to do a certain number of cases before I could even be considered for block time. And then you come to find out that they may not have any block time to give you. So block time, when is your clinic going to be? Are you going to have academic days? Another thing that was important to me was what sorts of funds were available to me for starting a research program? Was I going to have a clinical research coordinator? Was I going to have access to people who would help me with IRB regulatory efforts? And that is where really clarifying what it is you want from your job and then sitting down with people who have already been through the process, who aren't the ones necessarily hiring you, but the people that you trust and having them really talk to you about what things you should ask. There were certain things that I really wanted to have in the operating room. So I asked about ordering certain instruments, all of these little things that you don't really think about, even having access to a robot. So one of the questions I didn't ask that maybe I should have was for surgeons who are robotic surgeons and don't have robotic block time, how many days out are they having to wait before they schedule their case and then they actually get on a robot? It's hard to answer that generally. And that's why I think the best thing that people can do is is really think about the things about their job that they really like, be able to ask for those or, or talk to mentors to figure out how you ask for those. And then maybe even more importantly, what things really drive you crazy 
and see how you can avoid that. We want to find out about things like salary and whatnot, but most of that stuff will be outlined and you'll figure out pretty soon whether or not it's on par with everything else. I wanted to make sure, one, who are my partners? What are they comfortable doing? Find out more about them from other people if you can. Are they people that you're going to trust to take care of your patients when you're away? Because it's important to have a good support system. Otherwise, you're going to burn out if you're constantly feeling the need to be there to see your patients every two seconds. What's the call schedule? What's your expectation for that call schedule? What's your support during that call schedule? I take general surgery call in one of the, I'm in three hospitals in one of the hospitals I'm in, and it's a completely PA run system. So the PAs are in-house. They're the ones seeing the consults. So for instance, I wanted to know if there's butt pus at three in the morning, Am I driving in to see butt pus at three in the morning? Because that's the way that system is set up. So really understanding sort of those nitty gritty everyday things, because that's the stuff that burns you up. That's the stuff that frustrates you. So, you know, I'm starting off as an attending. My caseload may not justify me having my own personal PA, but is our understanding that if my caseload significantly increases and my patient load increases, are we putting it in the budget for me to have somebody dedicated to me in two years? What are my support staff options now and down the road? What are some of the, the, the services you're going to need in the hospital? For instance, again, some of this is colorectal specific, but I, I wanted to know, do we have wound ostomy care nurses? So just trying to really sort out the resources you need and what you need to help you grow and to facilitate that. And part of that might be even asking established surgeons in whatever field you're interested in, what are some of the things that they had starting off? What are some of the resources they didn't have that they wish they'd had? The broad question is, how do you see me fitting in here? What are your expectations of someone you're hiring for this position? And how do you see them becoming a part of your group? My co-fellow, who asked about call and understood what the call was, but it it has functionally ended up being a full week of general surgery call at a time with questionable coverage during the rest of the time. So it's almost as if they brought her on because she's a young gun who can operate. So hopefully people are upfront with you when you ask that question. Yeah, I was thinking about this. How do you know if they're lying or not lying. For me, it was helpful because it was a group practice. Number one, I had inside information from someone who was my former fellow and he had no incentive to lie to me because I was going to be his partner. And plus, yeah, I had the luxury of meeting several different partners in the group and individually so you could verify what they said with one another. But if you are being hired for like a small private practice and you really are talking mostly with the head person... Mm -hmm. How do you know? I would hope that their incentive in hiring someone is that it would be someone who would stay for a long period of time, because otherwise, why are they going through that effort? That's what I kept trying to tell myself. But you're right. It's hard to know. (laughs) If something is making you pause and it's a red flag, you shouldn't ignore it. For example, I didn't end up interviewing, but I spoke on the phone with this guy who was hiring for his private practice. And I got the sense that he had worked really hard. He started it in a very competitive city and he had two younger partners and he was hiring a fourth person. And he said, oh, call is great. We got to go to all the hospitals that we cover. So there's going to be a decent amount of driving, but when you're on, you're on. And one every three, you can't get better than that. So this essentially means you're hiring someone so that you can completely step out of call, which you're in charge that you can totally decide to do that. But who knows what else you're going to dump on me? It's not even like you're backing off. It's you're completely out of the call pool. 
So you just did some math and then you figured it out. I'm not very good at math, but that one I was able to figure out. Did you negotiate for your job? I try to negotiate, especially with regards to on-call pay. Didn't really get anywhere with that. So a lot of that was pretty much set in stone at our institution. They have, This is what they're offering a lot of faculty starting from a starting standpoint. I don't think it ever hurts to try to negotiate. I just, in my experience, found that I didn't have any any real leg to stand on coming on as a starting attending. Possibly future jobs or, or future salary negotiations, sure. If I'm established, then maybe I have some leverage. But starting off, as long as they're paying in the general ballpark that other jobs are paying in the same region, then I didn't find that I had a lot to, to, to bargain with. I came up with this wants and needs in the formal letter to the chair at the time. She had asked for this. She said, this is a good way to practice asking for what you want, regardless of whether it's this job or any other job. And in fact, I used it for other jobs to try to negotiate a contract. The bottom line is I put down what I want clinically, what I want academically, what I want from a teaching role, and what I just generally want from a job, formally down on paper, and what my future plans were, how I would actually accomplish those things, sent it to the chair. She said, okay, maybe a year or so or two years or so, these titles could be something that we could have you do. And then we can eventually renegotiate an academic component to your contract. It's down in writing. The money part of it, no, I was not able to negotiate any of the money part of it because again, Banner had a set amount of money that they were hiring every first year faculty at. So let's talk about the transition from a trainee to the one making the decisions. What was that like for you? So I actually felt like the transition was very easy. A lot of that I owe to coming back to my home institution. I knew the system. I know my partners. I trusted everybody explicitly. And I felt like I was very well trained. There is a new level of stress that comes with the amount of responsibility you feel and have as an attending surgeon. I feel like when I, as a resident, when there was a complication, there was still always like this shared responsibility that you had your attending there. And as an attending, I feel much more alone in that. It is difficult. And even though everyone said that it was going to be difficult and I listened to them and I was like, yes, I know it's going to be difficult. Let me prepare myself mentally for it. I still am like every day, man, I am drained because instead of being able to talk to someone about, hey, this is what's going on with the patient. Now it 100% is what I say is going to happen. Do you have debates with yourself in your head or even out loud? Yes, I had those debates all the time. So then I would come up with a list of patients who I said, hey, this is my plan. I'm either 90% sure or I'm 50-50 split as to one of these two plans could work. What's the better plan? I'd find a time when my senior partner was free and I'd be like, hey, let's look at these scans. And she would give me insights that I hadn't even thought of. And then the second thing is that when I'm in the operating room, I'm constantly talking. I'm constantly saying, okay, we're doing this because of this and I'm moving my instrument this way and here's the end goal and here's the anatomy. If it's a chief, I am often saying, this is what I want to do. How does so-and-so do it? I still have my own plan, but I think they have insights that can help me get better. What great things have you found about 
being intending. I think for a lot of us, by the time you're done training, part of you is just ready to be done and ready to start. There's so many different ways to approach things. And, and as you're training, you start to realize that you create your own way, which is a combination of things you liked and didn't like from all the people you get to work with. That was one of the best things about finally no longer being a trainee was finally I got to do things my way. That's something I'm still immensely happy about. I've been telling everybody this, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I have enjoyed being an attending and a surgeon so, so much. There are many, many, many times in which you want to quit. I actually did quit when I came back from the lab. I quit and was going to try and do physical medicine. I had all sorts of non-surgical ideas for what I was going to do. And then realized that the quickest way to start paying off my loans was just to finish surgical fellowship. So I had some pretty dark days in residency. And as someone who has had those dark days, light is at the end of the tunnel. I feel very grateful to be here. I didn't expect to like all of it so much. It was very refreshing to be, oh, I like my job. I'm glad I went into this. I love operating, which you kind of knew. I mean, hopefully, otherwise, why did you become a surgeon? But I really enjoy a great day, even if it's just basic general surgery, because then it's not stressful. But you know what I also found more fun than I thought it was is clinic. I actually enjoy clinic. And if I have a well-balanced work week, I don't mind a day or two days of clinic because you get to talk to the patients you're going to operate on. You get to start that relationship or you get to close that relationship. Hopefully they're doing well post-op. I've liked it. Oh, there's so many great things. Okay. Number one, you have more control of your time which is a daunting task. And it can actually also be a really horrible thing about being an attending because no one's telling you what to do or where to go. I've found that it's very fulfilling to really hustle and fill up your schedule with operations and say, yeah, I made that happen. And the other awesome thing about being an attending, especially in a place where you were not a resident, is for me as a human to say, oh, there are people in a completely new place who appreciate me and appreciate what I have to teach and my experiences from Emory and from OHSU and even from Michigan. And they are enjoying me teaching them about that. I recently picked up my saxophone again. I've been playing saxophone. I signed up to do an improv comedy class or something I always wanted to do throughout residency and I never had time to do it. At first I was sitting at home being like, all right, why am I not operating? But remember all those other things that are part of your personality, it's time to get back to those things. My next question, things that you were or were not well prepared for. So learning how to relax, not well prepared (laughs) for that, but we are teaching ourselves. Anything else? One of the things that I didn't maybe realize was that regardless of whether you're doing private or academic medicine, you have to market yourself a little bit. I've spent probably about six or seven months really trying to build my practice. It was very slow at first. COVID definitely didn't help. Some things that I did early on that I would recommend to any new attending is I sent emails out to every uh, PCP that was within a 10 mile radius of my clinic and said, I'm here. These are the things I do. This is my cell phone number. Call me if you have a surgical question. I think the other thing is being a manager. I still don't see myself as a manager, but I think functionally, yeah, there are people who I work with every day who ask me questions that I have to give them direction for. 
and even managing upwards for the whole practice. Yeah, you don't ever realize when you're a resident working with a junior attending how difficult it can be to manage a resident team and yeah. how much of that responsibility do you entrust your team to it versus you hold on to. And there's no necessary right or wrong answer because the balance is going to be a little bit different for everyone in their personality and where they are as an attending and you're going to continue to grow and change. For me, especially with my bariatric and forgot patients that are very protocolized, so much easier for me because I've developed my order set and my dot phrases just to do it all. That's not something I expect the residents to do. But at the same yeah. time, do learn by putting in the orders. If I am going to do three or four bariatric cases in the day, it's just no. easier for me to do it. Learning where your boundaries are and what kind of attending you want to be if you're working with learners, it's, it's not easy. What do you wish you took more advantage of in training now that you're in attending? There were certain details during surgery residency cases that I wish I'd taken note of. I wish I'd made little cards of certain surgeries and like this exact suture we use, positioning. You think you'll remember some of this stuff and you don't. Especially as we become more senior in our training, we can think that we have it all figured out or I don't need to do this case. I don't think there's ever any case too small. Probably in the latter part of my training, could have been more eager to scrub cases that I thought I had already mastered. Now, it may have been that I knew the case, but there's something we said about teaching people. I do think that you can get something from every single case that you scrub. That's sort of a double-edged sword because if you take that approach, you'll never leave the hospital. So I had these three rules for when I would decide whether or not I needed to scrub a case or stay in the hospital. One is that what's best for the patient. Does me staying there for whatever reason, maybe there's nobody else who's senior enough. If there is somebody who is as trained as you are and knows the, the patient and is rested and you're not, then go home. So one, if it's best for the patient. Two, would I learn something? Was it something I hadn't seen before? Was I going to have an opportunity to do something I had not done before? And then the third one was, does it help the team if I stay and do this case or stay late? Does it help the team who is also tired and has been in the hospital to help them go home early or help ease their stress or give them peace of mind? So those are my three reasons. A lot of times I could find yes to one of those three, if not more, but enough times I could find that the answer was no. And, and then I would get out of the hospital as quickly as, as possible. Wish I had taken more advantage like, of those intangible things about understanding how people build their practices and what those first few years were like for the people who were junior attendings when we first started. We weren't always able to be there for whatever case conferences were happening about complex bariatric patients or foregut patients. We went to some of them, but not all the time. You didn't necessarily see patients in clinic that were being discussed, but I wish there was a way to be more a part of that because you come to the operating and the attending has maybe been working on that patient for months, talking to various people, getting them optimized for surgery, and you're just there for the day of surgery for this really complex case. What is your thought process moving forward in your career? So right now, I'm pretty happy. I, I very well know that in a couple of years, I may feel differently. So I'm just taking it one year at a time. I have my five-year goal. I'm trying to be a little more nebulous about it than, than anything else, because I think that so many opportunities have arisen, even in the last year, that I didn't anticipate. 
for instance, diversity, inclusion, and equity. There was no one really doing that here. So I had a chance to take a leadership position. That's my approach to the career is that a yes and mentality, an improv mentality. I'm learning to say no thanks more as well, in addition to yes. I think what you're saying is just being open to opportunities that come your way because you don't never know when you're going to become the next expert in this just because it fell in your lap and it works. I don't know that I have a really straightforward answer for this. I think as long as those things are getting fulfilled, I'm continuing to grow. I do think that it's important to frequently reassess and reevaluate where where you are at with things. Are you happy clinically? Yes, no. Is it fixable if, it, if you're not happy? And then are you happy from, you know, an, an academic standpoint, if you're in an academic institution, is it fixable if no? And then lifestyle, are you happy from a lifestyle standpoint? And that's, I check in with that every few months or so. <laughs> Those were all our questions. Is there any other advice or suggestions you have? Just ask for help. There's plenty of resources even to help you look for jobs, but you've got to know to ask people and they've got to know that you're looking and they'll you'll be surprised how many people will help you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to our opening episode of season four. This episode was edited by Cameron Blunt, Samriti Benskoda, and produced by Alex Speak. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. And if you're a fan of Wiser, why don't you take a few quick moments to rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? We appreciate your support and we'll be back in October with another great episode. 